Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood, and I am so grateful that you're here with us today as we continue our exploration of the book of Galatians. Now, we've looked at how Galatians is aimed at a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers are coming into churches planted by Paul, and they are claiming the name of Christians, and they are teaching a form of salvation by faith plus works. And so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Galatia to persuade them to ignore, to turn away from the Judaizers, and to turn back to the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so we looked at how in our last theme, Paul wants to persuade the Galatians, that he is a legitimate apostle preaching the message of Christ. And what is that message that he's preaching? Well, that brings us to our theme for consideration today, the message of salvation by faith, not works. And so Paul points to a couple of ways that the Galatians should be able to tell that salvation is by faith, not works. First, their own experience proved it. So as Paul points out in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, all that the Galatians had came by faith and not by works. He puts it like this. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So Paul is saying, when I preach Christ to you, I preached him as Christ crucified. And as Paul said at the end of Galatians chapter 2, if salvation comes by works through obedience to the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So if you could earn your own salvation, why was I teaching to you? Why was I preaching to you about Christ crucified? Verse 2, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He's asking them, did you have to do something to get the Holy Spirit? Or did you turn from your sins and trust in Christ? And the answer is, of course, hearing with faith. And then he asks again in verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Remember what the Judaizers would say, that Paul's gospel, his simple childish gospel, you know, of salvation just by faith, that's how you get started. But if you want to become a full and complete Christian, you have to add obedience to the law of Moses. Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You can hear how ridiculous that sounds. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. Speaking of God the Father, the one who supplies the Spirit and works miracles among them, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What is the mechanism that activates the power of God in your midst? Is it by working hard and earning it? Or is it by opening your hands to your Father and saying, please help? The answer, of course, is opening your hands to your Father. So their own experience proved that salvation came by grace through faith and not through faith plus works. The second thing that Paul pointed to is Abraham's experience. Now, remember, for the Judaizers, the Old Testament is kind of where they're pointing at. Look at all these laws and rituals. This, you, you know that this is how you have to become a full Christian. But Paul shows that it's the Judaizers who don't actually understand the Old Testament. Paul argues in Galatians and in other places that just like Abraham, one becomes a child of Abraham or a child of God by faith and not by keeping the law. And again, the, the clearest place to see this is Genesis 15, 6. After God makes an outrageous promise to Abraham, it says in Genesis 15, 6, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham believes God and is counted righteous, not even before he keeps the law, 
But friends, 400 years before the law is even given, Abraham is counted as righteous before the law of Moses even exists. And those who follow his example are likewise counted as righteous. Whereas Paul says in Galatians 3, 6 through 9, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So friends, as you listen to this, if you have turned from your sins and trust in Christ, you are more a son or daughter of Abraham than an ethnically Jewish person who does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 8, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul says those who seek righteousness through the law are under a curse. Because as James writes in James chapter 2, all those who keep only most of the law or almost all of the law, if you keep the law but break one part of it, you become accountable for all of it. So the Judaizers are saying, you know, you need to be circumcised, you need to honor the Sabbath, and you need to eat kosher food. And Paul says the law doesn't work like that. If you want salvation through law keeping, you have to perfectly keep all the law for all of your life. And of course, no one can do that. No one can keep the law well enough to be declared righteous. But the purpose of the law was not to make you righteous. In fact, Christ came, Christ was cursed so that we can escape the curse of the law. Now, when I say the curse of the law, remember, there's nothing wrong with the law itself. The curse of the law is the guilty verdict that the law delivers to me and you because we are lawbreakers. The curse of the law is not the law itself. The curse of the law is the punishment brought by the law on guilty sinners. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul is here quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2. And he's showing that even in the Old Testament prophets, it says the righteous don't live by law keeping, the righteous live by faith. But there's a contrast. He says in verse 12, the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So Paul says in the Old Testament, there's two paths to righteousness that you can choose. Path one is law keeping. And as verse 12 says, the law is not a faith. So law and faith, when it comes to means of salvation, are diametrically opposed from one another. So the law and faith are different. So if you want to be made righteous through law keeping, all you have to do, it's real simple, perfectly obey every command of God for all of your life. That's it. And if you do that, you'll be declared righteous. The other option is faith. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ and be declared righteous. So Paul says, choose this day which path you're going to walk. You can't walk both. It's either salvation by faith or salvation by law keeping. But we know that you can't do it. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Friends, God knew that you couldn't keep the law, that I couldn't keep the law well enough to be saved. That's why Christ came, to absorb the curse that the law brings about on lawbreakers and to give us the righteousness that we need, to give us the promised spirit through faith. So the fact that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, was proved by the Galatians' experience. It was proved by Abraham's experience. And Paul says it's proved by the very purpose of the law. Paul claims that the Judaizers, inappropriately prioritize the Mosaic covenants or the law. Now, just 
just so we can make sure we're clear about this, we're going to talk here about the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is the covenant that God made with Abraham. And this covenant was made, roughly speaking, in 2000 BC. The Mosaic covenant is the covenant made with the people of Israel, the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, mediated through Moses. That's what's called the Mosaic covenant. And that was made in 1446 BC. So you can see that the Abrahamic covenant is over 500 years older than the Mosaic covenant. And Paul says the Judaizers are inappropriately prioritizing the Mosaic covenant. And as a result, they failed to grasp the importance and purpose of the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul says you can think of these two covenants like a legal will. The Abrahamic covenant came first, and therefore it should have the greater weight regarding the means of salvation. Because the Abrahamic covenant, as we've mentioned several times, says just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, the Abrahamic covenant says salvation comes through faith. The Mosaic covenant, wrongly understood, let me be clear, wrongly understood, the Mosaic covenant, as the Judaizers are teaching it, says that salvation comes through law keeping. But as we just saw, you can't have it both ways. If the Judaizers are right and salvation comes through law keeping, then the Mosaic covenant cancels the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant is a dead letter. It was dead in 1446 BC, but the law didn't get rid of the Abrahamic covenant. As Paul says in Galatians 3, 15 through 18, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promise is made to Abraham and to his offspring, and they do not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. And guys, don't you just love when Paul gets deep into the weeds and he stops and he's like, hey, let me let me tell you what I'm talking about. So thank God for verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. The covenant previously ratified by God is the Abrahamic covenant. So the law does not cancel out the promise made to Abraham. Verse 18, if the inheritance comes by the law, so if it's the Mosaic covenant that grants salvation, it no longer comes by promise. But remember, God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So if the law is how you get saved, which is the Judaizers, that's what they're telling people, then God and his promise to Abraham are canceled out. And this raises a question. Okay, why did God give the law in the first place? If the Abrahamic covenant is how we get saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then why the law? And this, is, of course, is a great question. And Galatians gives us a couple of answers. Galatians points out that the law was never intended to save. The law was intended to serve as a chaperone. Now, there are many other books of the Bible that talk about the purpose of the law. I point you to some of our episodes from Romans and from Ephesians, and we'll talk more about this in the days and weeks ahead. But in Galatians, the purpose of the law that Paul zeroes in on is the law serving as a chaperone. Now, this is a concept pretty foreign to us. But in the ancient world, a wealthy family who had a young male heir would often task a male slave to accompany the son, this heir, and protect them by restricting their behavior until they matured. So you think about it like this. I've got two sons. They're, they're two, almost three years old. And as one of my former pastors once said, boys are just bad ideas with legs. They want to jump off things. They want to eat bugs. They want to throw rocks at each other. I mean, they just are constantly putting themselves in danger. My wife and I 
feel like all we do all day long is walk around behind them and say, no, put that down. No, put that out of your mouth. No, you can't. No, no, stop, stop, stop. And we do that not because we don't love them. We love them with all of our hearts. And we do that not because we don't want them to have fun. We love to hear them laugh. We do that because they need to be protected because they don't have the ability to make good decisions. And so we restrict their behavior until hopefully, you know, when they're 30, they're mature enough in order to make good decisions. Well, in the ancient world, that role was not fulfilled by parents. It was fulfilled by this male slave called a chaperone. They would accompany the sons of rich families and protect them by restricting their behavior. Now, think of it this way. When you see them out in the marketplace, here's this little three or four-year-old boy and his chaperone. The chaperone, in one sense, has authority over the boy. It's the chaperone who tells the boy what he can and cannot do. But viewed from another perspective, it's the little boy who owns the chaperone. Well, one day the hope is that the little boy matures and then the chaperone is no longer needed and the chaperone can step aside. And Paul says the law was intended to serve as a chaperone until the coming of the promise. I'm going to read to you Galatians 3, 23 through 4, 7. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our chaperone until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. And now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, right? So slaves are ordered around. This child, the heir, though he is the owner of everything, he's bossed around by the chaperone. It says in verse 2 of chapter 4, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So after establishing this principle of the purpose of the law, it's not for salvation, it's to serve as a chaperone, Paul criticizes the Judaizers with an analogy drawn from the story of Abraham. Now, let me just refresh our memories here. Abraham is a pagan living in modern day Iraq, and he is called by God to come to leave his land and his family and go to a land where that God will show him. And on the way, God makes a promise in Genesis 12. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. God promises to Abraham to make him into a great nation, to give him a great land, to make to multiply his offspring, and to make Abraham and his family the conduit of blessing to the entire world. Now, when God makes this promise, Abraham and Sarah are 75 and 65 years old. And we are at the point in the biblical story where a 75-year-old man, a 65-year-old woman, that would be just about as old as they would be today. So this is not the days of Adam where people are living until 950. This is, they're old when God makes this promise and they have no children and they've never been able to have children. So 15 years go by and no child has come. So Abraham and Sarah, now 90 and 80, cook up a plot to help God out. They decide that even though God had told Abraham that it would be he and Sarah who would have a child, they decide that Abraham is going to sleep with Sarah's slave, Hagar. They're going to try and keep God's promise in their own strength. 
And the result of this sinful union is a child, Ishmael. And Abraham wants Ishmael to be his heir. He thinks, finally, a son. Here we go, God. Now we can get to work. And God says to Abraham, no, it's not going to be Ishmael who's going to be the heir. And Abraham's thinking, okay, well, um, then who? I'm 90. Sarah's 80. We're not going to have a kid. And God makes them wait about another 10 years. And when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, or as Paul puts in chapter 4 of Romans, when their bodies are as good as dead, God gives them a child by his grace. He creates a child in Sarah's womb. Now, obviously, Abraham and Sarah are intimate with one another. This is not a virgin immaculate conception. This is God miraculously creating life where there is no possibility of life through human effort. And Isaac is born. So this is a real story. These were real people. This really happened. But Paul uses this real story as an analogy, as an allegory, actually. And Paul says the Judaizers are like Hagar and Ishmael. They are enslaved under the law, and they represent an attempt by human beings to save themselves, to gain the promise through human effort. And Paul says believers, those who trust in the promise of God, are like Isaac. You are spiritually free And you are inheritors of the blessings that God gives through Abraham. So I'm going to read this passage. It's Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, Hagar, and one by a free woman, Sarah. The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, according to human effort, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Again, Abraham and Sarah were intimate with one another, but... A hundred-year-old men and 90-year-old women don't conceive and get pregnant apart from the power of God. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So, real Hagar, really a slave. The covenant at Mount Sinai now is a covenant that the Jewish people are enslaved under. And real modern-day Jerusalem for Paul, full of Jews seeking salvation through law-keeping, they correspond with Hagar and Mount Sinai. They are slaves, and the only child that they can bear is more slaves. Verse 26, But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So we also read in Genesis that as Isaac began to grow older, Ishmael, his older brother, realizing that it would be Isaac who would be heir of the promise, he began to be cruel and disrespectful to his brother. And so Abraham and Sarah eventually drive out Hagar and Ishmael. And Paul says, just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, the Jews of today who are, remember, they correspond with Hagar and Ishmael, they are persecuting you, believer, who correspond with Isaac. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free one. So then, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. The Judaizers were born according to flesh, and Christians, Paul says, are alive by the power of the Spirit. And so the Galatians should rid themselves of the Judaizers, turn away from them, throw them out of your your fellowship, have nothing to do with them, just like Abraham got rid of Hagar and Ishmael. Those who speak spiritual freedom through the law are still in bondage, and all they can do is put you back in chains. So friends, what do we do with this freedom that we've been given? 
That will be the topic of our next episode, our final episode in Galatians, as we understand the ethical freedom based on grace. But for now, take up and read, my friends. God bless.